Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. And this time, it's in association with Mercedes-Benz, which is great news, and I'll tell you more about it in a second. Uh, we've got a, a few other firsts today, one of which you'll probably see if you're watching the video. We are doing our first Al Fresco podcast. And you might think we're in the south of France, but actually, this is England. It's incredible weather, and hopefully we'll get to the end without um, expiring from the heat. <laughs> um, so, other news. It's our 100th podcast. So since 2009, we've recorded 6,000 minutes of audio. And someone a lot more clever than me in the office managed to work out that you could listen to them back to back, nonstop on your way to Australia and back twice, which um, is not a very useful statistic, but uh, interesting nonetheless. Um, so we've had some amazing guests in our time, and I'm going to just read out a couple of their achievements, um, because it's absolutely incredible. They've managed 10 IndyCar or kart championships. 12 world championships in Formula 1, 23 Isle of Man TT wins, and that's all down to John McGuinness, 38 Le Mans wins, 38 motorcycle world championship wins, and 204 Grand Prix wins, which is an amazing stat. So to today and the Mercedes partnership, um, they've secured the future of these podcasts, which is really, really exciting news, and they're going to be with us for the next year, and hopefully we can do some amazing stuff over that time. The following offer expires 31st of August. Participating retailers only. Make the most of this summer because it's going to be gorgeous. There'll be blue, cloudless skies, rolling countryside, beautiful beaches and warm, balmy seas. To get out there and enjoy it, book your Mercedes-Benz in for its free summer health check as soon as you can. We'll top up the essentials like your windscreen washer fluid. We'll leave your air conditioning smelling delightful. And we'll even get your car sparkling inside and out. And if for any reason summer doesn't turn out as expected... Never mind. At least you'll be able to enjoy your car. Visit mercedesbenz.co.uk to book your free summer health check today. Unmissable offers from Mercedes-Benz. So, the 100th podcast, a very warm welcome to Derek Warwick. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank so you. much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. I think what we're going to do today is, is rewind all the way back to the beginning and start talking about how you got into the sport, because it wasn't your average route into single-seater racing, was it? No, not really. Um, my father and uncle uh, have raced all their life, carts, um, short ovals, etc., etc. So it's in the blood. You know, we come from uh, agricultural trailer business, so there was always uh, cranes and drots and um, forklifts, and we had a big field beside, um, about five acres, where I used to have this old car, and I used to go round and round and round and learn to balance it on two wheels and all sorts of things. So it was always in the blood. Um, I did karting when I was 12, uh, just for one year, uh, won the Southern Area Championship, um, ran out of money, um, and then my father and uncle started the short oval racing, um, Formula 2 Superstocks, um, and um, I started when I was 15, put my age on a year, um, and started in stock cars, and then the second year uh, moved up to Superstocks. So Superstocks are uh, sort of like a sprint car, um, oval racing, um, sort of a, a semi-contact formula, um, but very tricky, obviously only two corners. Um, so it was, it was quite um, difficult to get the maximum out of the car. So I think I learned very quickly the mechanical side of, of racing, um, and it was something that carried me, I think, through all my career is I understood how the car worked, I understood how it felt, um, and I could um, I could transfer that to the engineer and um, and uh, team. 
And am I right? Your father raced against you a lot of the time. And I read somewhere that I think he fought a few of the fights post-race for you as you stayed in the car when you were, when you were a young lad. Well, it's quite <laughs> funny, really, because um, when I was 16, 17, I was still only about four foot nothing um, and obviously not big enough to uh, fight my own battles. Um, so uh, my father and uncle who were a couple of tough really um, I used to cause havoc out on the circuit because I was quick um, and I didn't care who I upset so when I came in having caused havoc um, my father always told me to keep myself strapped in the car visor down and then I would see these guys rolling over my bonnet punching everybody was having a big fight and then gradually it all settled down and I get out the car work on my car and go out into the next race so um, it was um, it was it was good good times racing against my father and uncle um, but, it, but it was then really when I look back that I realized the selfishness that I had because although I raced with my father and uncle we would obviously change engines quite often and we go to a circuit and all of a sudden my father or my uncle's engine was quicker than mine how can this be um, we come back that night from the racetrack and me and my mechanics would work all night, take his engine out, <laughs> put it in my car, <laughs> take my engine out and put it back in his car. So he knew about it. I wasn't lying or anything. But I realized then that I wanted to win, you know, and I, I wanted to win almost at all costs, really. But at that time, it, it, you wanted to win the, uh, the English Championship and then the World Championship and Superstocks. It was, you didn't have any dreams about being a Formula One driver at that time, did you? A million miles away. I'm not even sure I knew that it was there, to be honest. You know, it, it, my, my, my life was, was cut out by my father. Um, I would race um, Superstocks. I'd become world champion. I'd take over the family business. I'd run the family business, and that was it. You know, and trying to persuade my father to go to the next step um, financially as much as, as anything uh, was a big job and it was something that me and my Uncle Stan I, I, I've got to talk about my Uncle Stan at this point because um, he was a nutter um, he really was he was he was uh, he was definitely not all there it was he flew helicopters he won the King's Cup air race in in 73 um, he uh, he drew he flew under the um, tower bridge and got got banned for six months uh, he was really a, a wild card so so I had these two fathers um, my uncle Stan um, had five daughters so I was the sort of uh, surrogate son, if you like. Um, and then obviously I had my, my father. My uncle was this nutter that would always push me that next step. And my father was this conservative, um, typical father that only thought about his son and uh, was worried about his son. So I had these two wonderful um, influences um, coming together. Amazing, and then in, by 17 you were English champion. Um, and then by 19, you're a world champion. I was uh, digging through the motorsport archive yesterday, actually, and came across a piece that you did, um, I think, with Alan Henry about your greatest race. And you voted the championship decider when you became world champion of Superstocks as your greatest race over Le Mans, the Formula One races. Um, why was that race? I mean, obviously, it was special because you, you won the championship and things. But why was the, that the greatest? I, I think because all my family was there. Um, my father was in the race. Um, my uncle hadn't qualified. He probably got drunk or something. I can't remember. Um, He's probably but busy flying under Tower Bridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but I think um, basically it was because it was my ambition. You know, from when I was a, a, um, a 10 year old, I wanted to race short ovals. I wanted to be world champion. Um, I wanted to race against my father and uncle. Um, and at that time, I, I didn't know about Formula One. It was, you know, I saw a little bit on television, but very little. The coverage was pretty poor back in those days. Um, so I only wanted to be world champion. And, and that night was just the most amazing night of my life. Wimbledon capacity crowd, um, great racing. Um, I lapped my father and the last sort of 10 laps of you had a better engine than him <laughs> <laughs> I, sure I used his engine <laughs> <laughs> and um, he pulled off with uh, 10 laps to go because uh, he was looking at the scoreboard and seeing I was still leading um, and got too he got too nervous um, to be in the same race so he pulled off and uh, the emotion afterwards was just enormous of course when I won um, Le Mans it was it was equally as big 
but it's more professional. You know, we were amateur boy racers, and you know, we built the car ourselves, we built the engine ourselves. It it kind of was uh, it was a bigger thing in some ways, you know. Um, and you did obviously go into into circuit racing. Having won that world championship, how did you go from that to single seaters? Because as you said, you didn't really you weren't really that aware of Formula One. And I wasn't aware of Formula Ford. Um, no, I mean I was aware of nothing. You know, it just um, my my mad uncle was um, flying his plane um, out of uh, Thruxton Aerodrome. Um, and at the end of um, 74, um, he was watching Jeff Lees uh, win uh, Formula Ford races. And he went into the, the pits and saw these amazing Formula Fords with independent suspension and Hewling gearboxes. And, and um, he, he came back to, uh, to our little town in Orsford and said, look, there's a racing car show at the end of 74. We'll go up and you know, look at this Formula Ford stuff and see if we fancy doing it. Father had, didn't want nothing to do with it. He said, absolutely not, wouldn't come to it. So my two mechanics, um, my Uncle Stan and I went up there, got introduced to Hawk, to David Lazenby, and we were completely blown away by the technology um, compared to a stock car. It was, it was pretty awesome, to be honest. And, um, and we, just, we just wanted to do it. So we uh, put a budget together, because um, you didn't go back to my father without some sort of budget. Um, and we lied through our hind teeth how much it was going to cost and just so as to get dad up the next day and eventually we persuaded him um, and he came up because we knew once we got him through the door um, and got him to look at the cars he'd be sold and that's where we went Formula Ford race and we uh, still the, the, the deal was it was quite simple we go Formula Ford racing I'd work from seven to six every day um, in the in Warwick trailers the family business you were not allowed to work at all on the race car uh, during working hours you could only work on the car in the evenings and the weekends and race at weekends obviously um, and that was the deal and that's what we did so we ran it out the, the 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 workshop from Warwick trailers in a corner of the workshop with people making welding agricultural trailers next to me almost and um, that's how we went racing we, we, we really learned the hard way um, the two mechanics I had were just two friends one was a diesel mechanic and the other was a um, was a chippy and um, they didn't, even the two years we raced Formula Ford in 75 and 76, and the two years we ran Formula 3 in uh, 77 and 78, they couldn't even change the gear ratios. I, I was still the only guy that could, in the team that could change gear ratios. So to come away with, uh, in 76, 32, uh, 33 Formula Ford wins, um, and then in 78 racing against the might of PK and Sierra um, and De Cesares, um, and winning the Vanderbilt Championship um, was a pretty a, a pretty mean um, 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 feat, to be honest. Can I, I just rewind from the Vanderbilt title? Um, my Alton Park was my local circuit, but in 1975, early 75, I was staying with relatives down in Kent, and I went to Lydon Hill. It was the first time I'd ever heard of you, and I found the program. This is <laughs> this is not going to work for people who aren't watching the video, but um, it's not a gift I'm keeping. This, but I'll, I'll scan it for you. But if you if you look in the, if you look in there, April the sixth, nineteen seventy five, Lydon Circuit Motor Racing. According to my scrawled notes, you're uh, you're on pole for the first Formula Forty. But you got beaten that you didn't, didn't feature in the top three in the final. I don't know if, I don't know if you remember Lydon Hill, April seventy five. Well, um, am I allowed to swear on this um, yeah. podcast? Yeah, you asked that last time as well, actually. <laughs> <Did I? laughs> well, uh, the, the, the Hawk DL12 was a shitbox, to be honest, and uh, anybody that can put that on pole was a pretty good driver, that's all I can say. Um, but you know, this was the start of, form, of, of Formula Ford. You know, I, I, had, I had a gearbox, I had to change gear. I mean, in, in, um, in oval racing, you know, you keep the thing stuck in fourth gear, um, and that's where you are for the whole race, you know. So so uh, we had to learn how to brake and clutch and down change and uh, change gear. I mean, it was, it was, but obviously there was something there. You know, anybody that can put Hawk DL12 on pole must be pretty good, I tell you. <laughs> but, I mean, the, did you find that the, the racecraft, I mean, a lot of people say that one of the best universities for learning car control and racecraft, short ovals. Yeah. Because you, you're in traffic the whole flipping yep. time. Yeah. I mean, did you find that the transition because of what you'd done in short ovals, the transition to... Because the Formula Ford in the mid-70s, quite often two heats, sometimes three heats in a final, or 80-odd cars entered, it was ferocious. Did you find that that just it came naturally? Absolutely. And I think in 76, again, you know, we didn't have big budgets. I think I only crashed once, 
you know, out of 60-odd races, you know, winning 33. I only crashed once. And as you well know, you know, 76 was the height of Formula Ford. It was a fantastic oh, season. Derek Daly, Devaney, Bremner. David um, Kennedy. Uh, David Kennedy, Walsh. Um, uh, all these guys were just incredible. Rick Morris uh, was just incredible racing. We're still racing Formula Ford now. Oh, still racing Formula <laughs> Ford now, yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think it helped me. I think the only thing that went against me is um, if something happened or I took somebody off or whatever then it was the dirty stock car driver um, you know when I won great races um, it was a great racecraft from oval racing so you carried that that stock car banner uh, for quite a bit really through the first parts of Formula Ford and you lost it in Formula 3 because all of a sudden people looked at you different when you got into Formula 3 because you were that one step from Formula 1. Would you, by this, in Formula Ford, were you by now thinking, right, Formula One is where I want to be? Was that, was that as soon as you had tasted Formula Ford? Was that how quick it was or did that... No, I mean, I started watching Formula One um, because obviously 76 when I won my championships, um, of course, the great um, James Hunt won his world championship. And also, um, we had um, the, the Formula 5000s were sometimes the backup race. Um, we were the backup races of <laughs> Formula 5000. Interesting way of looking at it. I got, I got lost there a little bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you, you, know, you saw people like Teddy Pellet, um, yeah, um, uh, Alan Jones in the Thursday's car, and you saw these great big thundering 5000s um, coming through uh, Russell at, at Snet and places like that. And I used to just think, wow, wouldn't that be something special? So that was the nearest I, I was really to Formula One. I don't think I really realised I was good enough or a possibility to get to Formula One until my second year of Formula Three. You know, when we won the first five races and people really sat up and started looking at Derek Warwick um, and knowing also that they were, it was still being run off the back of a trailer um, in, in a workshop with um, Warwick trailers. So um, I think that, um, I think then I started to think, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm good enough because you, you just didn't know because it, it wasn't our upbringing, you know. I think that's probably a good point to bring this up. Just something else I found in my archive. It's a yeah, picture I took in the Alton Park paddock in 1978. Try not to imagine how much, how much <laughs> junk Simon has in, in his archive. Um, I was taking a picture of Doug Niven's Beetle, but in the background there, and again, this isn't going to work particularly well on the podcast. You'll see a, you'll a, see a photo old, on the video. A knackered old bus with Warwick, Warwick Trailers, British International Formula. That is a championship winning team. Operating. Yeah, can, you, can you... Can you Reconcile that a with knackered, a knackered old sorry, bus. It's a, it's a lovely. It's I was a, wondering whether he was going to get away with that. It was a lovely knack. It's a lovely knackered old bus. We we spent <laughs> we spent six months building that knackered old bus, and it was our pride and joy because we'd put the car in the back and we'd sleep in the front, yeah. and uh, we went to Monaco, um, sleeping in the front of the of, of the bus um, and preparing the car out the back. Um, that. That knackered old bus was the pride and joy of Warwick trailers. Let me tell you. No, it was it was it was um, it was it was great to be able to go racing and uh, keep the community together, keep all the all my mechanics and everybody together. And um, at that time, obviously, I'd, I'd, I'd met my wife, and um, well, she, I'd met my wife actually in um, when I was doing oval racing. Um, so she was uh, uh, she came all the way through all that. So it was it was great racing. You know, what I realise now with hindsight. Yeah, that how we won those races in Formula 3, how we had the success we had, I have no idea. When you're racing against uh, Nelson Piquet in the might of Rout, because Rout was really behind Piquet, you know, he was getting live engines from Pedrozani, the Nova Motors, um, and I had this one engine that I just used to cherish day after day after day. Um, it just, it goes to show that, you know, we were, we were competing well above um, where we should be, that's for sure. The, uh, I read somewhere, I think it was with the lunch with Simon Taylor you did, uh, that the F3, the step up to F3 wouldn't have happened uh, if it wasn't for a phone call <laughs> asking for a, a ridiculous number of trailers that you didn't actually have space or time to build. In, in, in um, the end of 76, we were flat out in the trailer business. Um, and I was trying to convince my um, father to go Formula 3. Um, we were looking at the Chevron B38, 
um, again, my mad uncle and I got together and we put this budget together that Formula 3 was going to cost us £10,000. Um, and we went to my dad with this budget and said, this is what it's going to cost us. We had a bit of money from BP and a few um, private um, individuals. Um, and then um, our salesman came to us and said, um, we just had a, um, a, a, an inquiry from Saudi Arabia uh, for six bow trailers. And these just flatbed long trailers, um, what we call, we used to put bows on, bows of straw. Um, and, and I remember um, my dad saying, absolutely no way, we can't fit no more in, we're working every hour God sends, you know, we just can't do no more. Um, and, and I remember Pete Rawlings, our salesman, saying, well, I've got to go back and tell him something. And he said, oh, well, well quote, three times the price. So I remember the number, it was six, we, we had to do six trailers, and it was £6,000 a trailer. And we, we were knocking them out for 500 quid or something. I mean, it was ridiculous. And so we went back and, and quoted these six trailers, six grand a piece, and they said yes. <laughs> well, they come back to us, and we and, and on the on, just on the back of that one order, and and Dad, Stan, uh, myself, and my two two mechanics worked nights to build those six trailers. We never used the the, the normal hours, so we could actually say that the the profit from those cars actually ran the F three cars, um, and it was just that order that took us three uh, to Formula Three. Can can you? Be, I mean. Looking back at that photograph and those grassy Hilton Park paddock and people operating out of old motor coaches as you were, I mean, can you reconcile that with what we have nowadays with 15-year-olds, with, with managers, agents, fitness trainers, psychologists, etc.? No, but, you know, that's the 21st century. That's the world we live in, you know. I think um, uh, being chairman of the McLaren Autosport BRDC Young Driver of the Year, I've realised this last three or four years how prepared they are mentally, physically, um, these young, not 15 year olds, because I won't take a 15 year old, but they're 16, 17, 18 year olds, they, they come to us for this competition, they are ready. They, they go out in that F2 car, I've never ever driven it, and their first lap as they come into Stowe, you think, wow, you just knocked away. Because there's so many other ways now that they can become great drivers, simulators. They're 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 more attuned to what's going on. So, um, is is would they have survived in my day? No. Um, would we have survived in this day? Yes. I always say that um, somebody always tries to uh, compare Rocky Marciano with Muhammad Ali or Joe Frazier, um, the same as they do with uh, Fangio, with Moss, with PK, with uh, Prost, with Senna. Different eras, but great drivers, great champions, great fighters, great golfers, um, great sportsmen are great in any era. And if they had been born 10 years later or 20 years later, I still believe that they would have been great racing drivers. So, yes, I think it, it's just different. And I think the fact that I'm president of the British Racing Drivers Club, the fact that I do the FIA um, driver steward, it keeps me current. You know, I, I know what's going on out there um, and, um, and I appreciate it. And, uh, and it really um, is, is quite, it's quite humbling when you see these young guys come through. Something, um, I was going to talk about the, the British Racing Drivers Club in a bit, but um, I, do, I mean, we're very lucky to get you today because you're, you're not only obviously doing that, which is all on your spare time and everything like that, but you, you've got so many other biz business interests as well, haven't you? Are you still involved in Triple uh, Eight at all? Yeah. Not, so not UK. Not UK, um, but in Australia. No, in Australia, um, my partner uh, was over last week, funny enough. We employ 49 people down there. Um, we've got a budget this year of 13 million. You wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have minded that when you were racing. No, you? no. <laughs> was that, was that from building dollar. trailers overnight? Or yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, we don't make those many trailers anymore. Um, so, you know, Australia's good, you know, and uh, I've got a good guy running it down there. You know, I'm, I employ nearly 200 people. You know, I've got, I've got three building companies in the UK. Um, I've got the Honda Garage in Jersey. Um, I'm president of the British Racing Drivers Club. I sit on the board. Um, I also, since uh, Paul's um, um, accident uh, 25 years ago, um, I've been on the safety committee of the MSA, and I'm still on the safety committee of the MSA 24 years later. Um, so I am busy. I've been at McLaren this morning. I'm at Silverstone all day tomorrow. Uh, for a board meeting, um, um, I suppose you could say that um, I'm busier now than any time in my life. You know, I, 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 I actually 
when I go to races now, I look at these racing drivers and I think, you have no idea how lucky you are, how simple your life is, you know, just trying to find another half a tenth through, through turn six. That, uh, I, I'm quite jealous of them sometimes. And they don't even have to go and nick the dad's engine, are they, no, do they? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, they haven't got a mad uncle to compare or, or to compete with. Um, you, you mentioned Paul there, and it's the, it is obviously the 25th anniversary. We've actually had a couple of questions in, um, both really about your memories of him, um, and there's actually quite a nice one here from Alex, who uh, is, I remember t feeling sure that he was a future of British motor racing, blisteringly fast, brave, and as I discovered, after I nearly inadvertently planted him in the barriers at the bottom of the paddock <laughs> during a test session of Brands Hatch, utterly charming and gracious in the pits during my gibbering apology. Oh, that's um, lovely. Yeah, which that's is a really, really nice memory. That's really um, nice, yeah. And it's one from Henry Hope Frost asking to the same thing about, about your memories of him. Um, I, w I was lucky. Um, Paul came, came by in our family um, 14 years after I was born, so he was definitely the baby of the family. Um, so he was, he was spoiled. He was the most spoiled, unspoiled child you could ever meet. Um, he really understood what he wanted. Um, and funny enough, I had a conversation with somebody a couple of days ago when we were talking about tomorrow being his 25th um, anniversary of, of his death. Um, when he was in the lower formulas, he was pretty rubbish, to be honest. You know, when he started off in mini stocks, he was rubbish. Then he got into Formula 2, he was stunning. In Formula 2, you know, with the, with the bigger engines and um, uh, the fast cars that I drove in them days, um, he was stunning, absolutely unbelievable. He got into Formula Ford, was okay. Formula 3 was a bit difficult for him, but never really in the right team, um, but always quicker than his teammates, so it sort of showed that he had something there. And then, of course, in 91, he got into 3000, um, and, well, you know, his record speaks for itself. I think it's five pole positions, four lap records, five wins, including obviously the race that um, he was killed in because um, it passed 75%, so he was still um, given the full win. So he was a special lad. Um, he was a boy um, until 91, funny enough. Uh, we used to go training uh, for two weeks in Sam Ritz, cross-country skiing, uh, running up mountains, tennis, squash, um, and go running most nights, all that sort of stuff. And he he developed from '91. You know, in '90 he was still he was still following Derek. He was still trying to keep up with me in the gym. He was trying to keep up with me on cross country skis. He couldn't run up the mountain as quick as I could. In '91, it just like he, he he turned into a man. You know, and and I was following him. I was racing him. He was beating me. Um, and Another thing he did is, um, because he was following my career and he sort of hero worshipped me for all the way through, he was clever enough to understand my good points and build on the bad points. So he was more, almost more complete racing driver um, in that 91 season than anybody could have wished for. Um, he, he was... Uh, he was special in our family because he was the baby. I've got three sisters, um, and because he was the baby of the family, um, everybody just worshipped the ground he worked, uh, he walked on, um, and he was very special. And the day uh, that that um, he had the accident at Alton Park, um, it was a big knife in our family. Um, my mother never really got over it, um, and. If you go, this is my, my daughter's house, if you go around um, some of her rooms, um, prominent pictures will be of Paul. In my house will be Paul. Um, my grandchildren know about Paul. Um, everybody knows about Paul. Not, not that it, it's obsessive. Um, whenever I meet and take my sisters um, to dinner, uh, the conversation is always about Paul, you know, and that's just 25 years later. Um, that's the kind of um, mark that he's left with us. It's great that he's remembered so fondly yeah. and, and remembered so often as well. Yeah. Simon, you must have seen him race uh, quite a lot. Um, yes, I did. I mean, I, I first met him when he was uh, doing the Dunlop Autosport Formula Ford Championship. Well, he did both junior Formula Ford Championships, didn't he, in 87? Yes. And uh, I think he won, he won both of them, didn't he? I think he did, yeah. Yeah, I, I saw him racing Formula Ford, Ford 2000, Formula 3, um, European F3000. I had um, more or less a year to the day before he died, I had supper with him at a um, lovely restaurant in Anna, Pagusa. Yeah. And just a lovely evening, just three or four of us sitting there. And it was, that was the first time I really kind of got to know him well over, you know, it was a long, a long dinner. And unfortunately, I was at Alton Park on the day of the accident as well. So, I mean, I, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, I had got to know him pretty well, um, and he was, as Derek he, he said, very eloquently. I mean, he, 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 I mean he's, he's driving, I mean, he was driving the wrong car when he did European 3000, but then when he got with Madrick in 91, just everything clicked, and yeah. he, he looked unbeatable. Yes. And he was against good people as well, Richard Dean, for example. Yeah. Very, very good driver, very high-caliber driver. Um, Richard Westbrook. Uh, yeah, Julian. Uh, yeah. Westwood, 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 yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah, Phil Andrews, and yeah. he was very experienced in, in three thousand. Yeah. I mean, there were some good people in that championship, yeah. and um, and Paul just looked unbeatable. He was a bit like the Pied Piper, you know. Whoever he come in in touch with, would be his next biggest fan, because because he had that kind of following, um, and um, and I think it hurt a lot of people. I remember, I remember at the funeral. Um, the the vicar was very upset because I wanted flo um, uh, tributes. Um, he said, it, you know, you should put it towards some charity or something. I said, no, you know, we want to give him um, a big send off. And when um, when uh, we uh, come out of the church to go to the the grave, um, there was tributes lined each side of the path for two three hundred yards. I mean, there was I I, I don't know five hundred two hundred I don't know, but a lot from Senna, from uh, Bernie, uh, from all Formula One drivers. It was, it was, it was special. And after the, um, after we uh, buried him, uh, we went back to the Swan, which my uncle Stan owned, <laughs> um, and had a few drinks, which was next next to the the church. And after a little while, um, I walked back um, to have a moment on my own with Paul. And the vicar was there, and um, I said, "Oh, you know, thank you very much. It was a, it was a great sermon." He said, "Derek," he said, "This has really changed my view." He said, "This was the most emotional." Um, here I go again. Well, I think what we should do is we should have a look at the your time when you arrived in Formula One because it wasn't wasn't easy, I have to say. Um, your your year at Tolman in in eighty one. Um, the, uh, the the list of results is, is not pretty reading, I have to say. And the, the did not qualify, did not, <laughs> DNF, did, did not qualify, did not pre-qualify, did not qualify. <laughs> um, I think the best thing that happened to that car was probably when Brian Henton hit the uh, Silverstone chicane with it. And <laughs> and yeah. I've got a picture of him <laughs> stepping out the car with it just smouldering, and I thought that's the best thing for that car is to be in a big smouldering heap. But you, the the silver lining in that year was you did win a bet, didn't you? Um, that you actually managed to get it on the grid, didn't you? Bet was it five thousand pounds with someone that you'd actually finally and you did the last race of the season in um, Vegas. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. You, and you got it on yeah, the grid. Yeah, got it on the grid. So yeah. it wasn't all bad. No, it wasn't all bad. <laughs> I mean, the car. I mean, I always remember my. We talk about the proudest moments. You know, we talk about the world championship in Superstocks. Um, um, obviously, uh, winning uh, Le Mans, but that first time you're a Grand Prix driver. It's pretty special, you know. He, you've worked so bloody hard to get there, and you know, and then you finally go out as a Grand Prix driver. And I remember that the, our first race was actually Imola, and um, I was stood, stood in the pit lane, um, proud as punch, my chest puffed out, um, signing autographs. And I was in the middle of doing one autograph, and then all of a sudden, somebody snatched the pen. Um, because Villeneuve had walked about um, 500 <laughs> yards away, uh, so it put me back in my box, really. And uh, but you know, in the early days, we were 14 seconds off the back of the grid. That's how bad the the, the flying pig was, you know. And and we gradually made it a little bit better, but the the concept was poor. We didn't have enough money. We couldn't come out with a new car. And um, the Ross, you know, Ross, we all, we all know about Rory Byrne, you know, one of the greatest designers of all time. So he just got it wrong and we just didn't have enough money those first two years. So 82, sorry, 81 and 82 with the Flying Pig uh, was hard work, you know, and we, we missed qualifying as much as we qualified, to be honest. We've actually, we've got a question here, which we've got so many questions. Um, I'm not going to be able to find specific ones when I actually think of them. Um, but there's, there is a question about Brian as a teammate and what he was, what he was like. Um, Funny enough, um, we had a Aichons de Pilots um, in uh, Ferrari about four or five weeks ago. Um, so um, I was there with people like Teddy Pellet and Derek Bell and Vern Schupen and uh, Brian Henton. And um, me and Brian have always had a bit of a, um, an aggressive uh, friendship, I suppose is the right way of, of, of uh, doing it. What Brian taught me is how to survive in Formula One because he was a tough 
because he was a devious god, um, because he was all those things. I, I, I don't need to hide because I said it. I repeated it all to him at Ferrari four weeks ago, and and he he sat there almost proud of of, of how I was summing him up because I was talking in front of all the other drivers. I said, but he taught me how to survive. He taught me that you can't just be Mr. Nice Guy. You can't just expect to turn up and everybody's just going to give you the best car and the best engine. You've got to survive. Um, and it's to his peril, really, because, you know, um, I was with him in, in 1980 he, when he won the Formula 2 championship and, and I was second. And then in Formula 1, you know, he was my teammate. Um, but I survived for 82. He didn't. Um, so he, he taught me. Um, he was quick bloody quick um, but like I say he was devious he was aggressive um, and um, he taught me um, a lot in terms of being um, of being of being a complete racing driver I think you know because I came I was a bit raw you know I ran my own car for four years for goodness sake um, and then joined Tolman my Tolman in 80 Formula 2 was my first ever works drive um, and then all of a sudden I'm in Formula 1 so I had a lot of learning to do and um, he helped me do that can I just rewind the clock to the beginning of the Tolman time, if I may? I mean, Brian became your teammate after Tolman dropped Stephen South, who was supposed to, it was supposed to be you and Stephen in the team, and Stephen went to drive for McLaren without permission, and he, he, got, he got sacked. He always struck me as a, I mean, again, watching him in Formula Ford and Formula 3 and stuff, he looked like a really bright star of the future. Unfortunately, he was very badly injured in a Can-Am accident as his career ended. I just wonder what your recollections of Stephen are as a... I think, I think Stephen mm -hmm. would have given me more problems than Brian. Um, we all know Stephen was an um, 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 unbelievable driver. Would he have made it in Formula 1? Absolutely. Was he quick enough for Formula 1? Absolutely. Was he quicker than Brian and me? Um, I, I think we'd have given a good run for the money, but he deserved to be in that, that Tolman car that year. He was a bit silly um, going off and, and driving the, the F1 without getting permission. Um, and Alex Hawkridge, you know, it really, um, uh, it was something he should have done and Alex had no option but to get rid of him. Um, um, but yeah, I think, I think he would have been a great champion, Stephen. You know, it, it was unfortunate with the accident with Can-Am because um, that put paid to his uh, racing career, of course. Now, just before we move on to the, the move to Renault and, um, and the rest of the F1 sports cars and things, I must mention that there's a special offer for um, all of you listening. And that's if you go to shop.mercedes-benz.com uh, and you enter silver-10 in capital letters. I'll repeat that because I didn't actually even catch that myself. Silver-10 in capital letters. When you're at the checkout, you get 10% off all motorsport items. And I've actually, well, I went in there this morning and you can get a key ring of the Moss and Jenks 55 Mercedes-Benz SLR, 300 SLR. So um, it's very motorsport in there. And you also get a life-size sticker of Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg. So there you go, Simon. You can have one of those <laughs> on your wall. Uh, the offer does end on July 31st. So do, do uh, make the most of it and get in, get in there now. That's shop.mercedes-benz.com. Um, so, the, the move to Renault, it must have been like night and day going from Tolman to Renault, wasn't it? In well, it was also night and day going from 82 to 83. Um, the 83 car was a proper racing car, you know, you could feel it, you understood what was going on. Of course, it kept breaking down. And we were the only driver, I think, in the last four Grand Prix to finish in the points. So, we had our first points ever for Tolman in um, Zandvoort that year in 83. Um, and um, so then things really turned around for me as a, as a driver. A lot of other people were talking about me. Um, and, um, and obviously we, uh, we started speaking to uh, Renault, uh, for, uh, to LaRousse uh, for the 84 season. And, um, and I always remember because we sort of negotiated, we knew where we were gonna be. Um, and I'd already spoken to Tolman um, and to Alex Hawkridge. And we were at the racing car show at the end of 83. And um, my dad, my father rang me and said, um, are you sat down, boy? And I'm thinking, oh, no, it's, it's turned to crap, you know? Um, and I said, um, come on, Dad, just tell me, what, what is it, what is it? And he said, um, I've just had a telex through um, <laughs> confirming your drive from LaRousse. And he told me what the number was, how much it was and everything. And 
we got very drunk that night. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, all of a sudden, I'm driving for a works team. You know, I'm driving for um, for Renault. You know, one of the, the the greatest teams in Formula One at that stage. I thought, and um, you know, it was uh, at that time I knew it was going to be Patrick Tambay was the other driver. I always say the second driver. He doesn't really like that, but um, <laughs> the second driver. And um, and '84 was just fantastic. The car was just amazing. Again, you know, we had too many failures um you know grand prix driver today i have no idea what it was like to drive back in the 80s you know you you, you broke down in more races than you, you finished you know so it was a difficult time we almost won the first time out in um in brazil um and you know we were normally quicker than patrick um and then the crunch came at the british grand prix 84 um and it was a great race at brands hatch it's i ended up 32 year anniversary this friday yeah, so you said, yeah. So, yeah, I finished second, um, but LaRousse had put a lot of pressure on me uh, to re-sign for the 85 season. Um, I was already well in talks with um, Frank Williams to join uh, Williams in 85. I had a little bit of a conversation with Ferrari, because remember, we didn't have managers in them days, so it was down to me. Um, but I, I spoke to um, the terrible three, which was Alan Henry, Nigel Roebuck, and Morris Hamilton, who were my chief advisors. Um, and between us, we um, quite rightly said uh, the decision was to stay with Renault for 85. And of course, it was a disaster because we lost LaRousse, we lost Michel Tetu, our, our, our chief designer, we lost Mijo, our aerodynamicist, and about three or four other engineers, lost them all. Um, um, so the 85 car came out, um, we took it to Brazil, um, beginning of 85 and it was three and a half seconds slower than the 84 car um, and of course 85 is history as they say you know it was a dreadful car um, it was a dangerous car um, and then my career really took a bit of a dip I suppose but it, it, where one door closes I suppose and another one opens and that's that's when you got into sports cars and uh, you had so much success in those um, do you look back on it and think, well, actually, while it was a, sort of a decision in hindsight, it wasn't a great one. It did open that door for in the, into the sports. Look, course. I look back in my career and could I have won Grand Prix? Yes. Could I have been world champion? Yes. If I didn't have that self-belief, there's no point in being a driver in the first place. Um, do I regret not signing for Williams? No. You know, do I regret all these things? No. I had a fantastic career. I drove some fantastic cars and I'm here. I, ha I did not break a finger um, in arguably some of the most dangerous times in Formula One. Um, so what have I got to be sad about, you know? Um, I was disappointed at the end of 85 when Senna um, uh, um, ended up getting rid of my contract with Lotus because um, I'd love to have been teammates with Ayrton. Obviously, he didn't want me to be teammates with him. So that's a backhanded compliment in he some ways. He sent you a Christmas card, though, didn't he? He sent me a Christmas card um, and a New Year's card wishing me all the best for 86. Now, Thanks. remember, 86, I didn't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I, but I, I seriously believe that he just thought I would pick up another drive, you know, and he didn't think I, he was finishing my career. I think he just thought that Lotus couldn't produce two number one cars and he didn't want this Brit that he thought was maybe a threat um, on the other side of the garage. How did you get to find out about the, the, the thing? Well, I'd, I'd signed my contract and I was called back up to Lotus um, Christmas 85, um, all bullshit thinking they're going to sign and, and obviously give me the, uh, the signing on fee, if you like, just to be told that they've changed their mind, they're not signing me, they've torn my contract up. Um, and obviously I asked for an explanation. They said, Ayrton don't want you in the team. You know, he, the, the sponsorship is all around Ayrton. The sponsors have backed him um, and we've decided to go a different way. And I said, well, hang on a minute. You know, the, all the drives are gone. You know, I've got nowhere to go. Um, but you know, they, uh, Ayrton, quite rightly, they followed him because he, at that time, looked something special and obviously, um, history has proved that he was, was. he was more than something <laughs> special. <laughs> um, we haven't got too long left, so I must uh, rattle through some of these questions. Okay. Um, but there's quite a nice one here about you know what we were just talking about um, from Stephen, who says, "Eau Rouge in a mid '80s turbo car in qualifying, or Mulsanne Kink in a Jaguar before the chicanes were installed." Frightening. 
Yeah, both of them. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think both of them would be. I think he's wondering which you prefer. I, well, I think I, I prefer know, to watch. I get disappointed when I hear um, modern day guys talk about Eau Rouge because it's almost a straight now. It's not even a lift for these guys. For us, I mean, as you went down the hill after after turn one, you had to grab hold of your watsits in tight <laughs> and and you would just pray that you come out the other side it was it was pretty special um the Mulsan um kink um you know we were we were approaching that at 400 kilometers an hour um in a car that was very very floaty very very you had to drive your Lamore car with with almost with kid gloves with uh, with fingertips you know um it was very very um very very difficult and you had Porsche 911s and slow WMs and things floating around yeah. outside of you as well but you see this is where stock cars maybe come out because mm. you know I was used to overtaking cars and being overtaken and have them on the right side and the left side and all that sort of stuff I enjoyed it I love Lamore you give me it every day. I mean, I just, I just, you know, I do three stints in the night because, you know, nobody else wanted to, you know. If it was raining and it was dark, you know, put Warwick in for three <laughs> stints, you know. Go and have a cup of tea. I love my time at sports cars, you know, because uh, unlike Formula One, I always had the best car or one of the best cars. So, you know, I, was, I won races straight away. 86 with Jaguar, 91 with Jaguar, 92 world champion and Lamar with Peugeot. Um, and it, and, and it kind of re, reconfirms that in the right car you can win, and and I know this is this is this is going to come across awkward for some people. Winning is easy when you qualify twenty sixth and you work your off and finish seventh. The drive of your life, and I can name one when I was with Arrows um, at Suzuka, and you get back to the pits and they've already gone to the airport. And, you know, you've had the drive of your life and nobody knows about it. You know, it's they're the days that you've got to pick yourself up on the Monday morning and, and convince yourself to go back and, and do it again. Was it, I'm just trying to think, was it, was it at Hareth in 86 when... I don't well, talk about Hareth in 86. Yeah, th th that is the correct race I'm thinking of. I'm just <laughs> gonna, I, I, That's I, a yes then. Yeah, I, was, I can't remember if there were two or three silk-cut Jaguars that ended up in the gravel at three, yeah. And I just, what was Tom Walkinshaw like that afternoon? Um... I'd like to first of all say I was on pole. It wasn't my fault. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't say it was your fault. No, I just no, wanted to know what Tom Walton just said. Um, but I'm saying that with a silly <laughs> grin on my face. Tom was not happy. Tom was not happy. He was. He was. He was like a mini Bernie Eccleston. You know, he was frightening. He was you wider know, than Bernie Eccleston. He was wider. He was bigger, fatter, um, and uh, not worth as much money. Um, but he was. Um, he was a good taskmaster. Uh, he really was, and um, he was he was good to drive. Me and him clashed a little bit. He was a massive Martin Brundle fan, um, so we always clashed. Um, but um, yeah, he wasn't happy that day. No. Am I right in thinking that he signs quite a f at least two of you, and in your contract you had number one driver in? in <laughs> And it, went, and it was only when you started bragging to each other that you soon discovered that things weren't quite <laughs> as they might have seemed. 86, I signed as number one driver, um, and we were going to Sam Ritz to do cross-country skiing. Eddie Cheever had already signed, uh, Jean-Louis Schlescher and um, Brancatelli. Brancatelli. And um, anyway, we're, I'm last there, and um, we're all in a big like a dorm, uh, the four drivers, and I arrived last, so I've obviously got the worst bed, you know, the, in the, but they, what they'd done is they put my bed in a loft. There was a little door, and they somehow squeezed my bed in through this loft, and they said, oh, your room's in through there. And of course, that was funny. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then we all went down for a sauna. We were sat in the sauna. And, um, and of course, the one thing Brian Henton taught me um, was, first of all, get into your teammate's head. Right, you know, if you can if you can beat him here, it's easy to beat him on the track. So I'd sat in there and I said, you know, Eddie, I'm really surprised um, that you signed as my number two. Excuse me. <laughs> I said, I'm really surprised you. He said, I've signed as number one. I said, No, I signed as number one. I've signed as number one. So obviously we both had this number one contract. So he rushed out the door because I was already in his head. And, uh, I was comfortable because I, I, I could imagine what um, Walkinshaw was up to. But uh, yeah, they were good days, good days. But then uh, you mentioned Bernie then as well. There was, um, when you signed for him, I think you sort of got a little bit of a taste of his negotiating skills um, when, you, when you signed on the dotted line. Well, I think um, the, the sad thing about motor racing is um, when we lost Elio, um, it was a big hit for all of us because he was such a gorgeous guy, he really was. And um, 
so when he when I heard about the accident, um, I understand from Bernie afterwards, he had something like eight phone calls within an hour of the accident, um, saying that they were ready to drive for him. Um, I didn't do that because I didn't think it was right, um, and I left it about a week. And then Bernie contacted me, and I think he appreciated the fact that I had called him. Um, and he said, you know, um, I is Bernie here. Um, would you like to come and talk about driving for me? So, yeah, of course. So we made a date, and um, I got on a plane. By the time I got to Brabham, I had convinced myself that I was worth $20 million. You know, I mean, you know, dead man's seat. You know, it was a big job. The car was crap, um, and I've really got to bring the team together. So I got into the room. I said, look, Bernie, I said, before we talk contract, I want to go and um, look at the cars and speak to the guys. No. Uh, I said, well, you know, I'd, li I'd like to know what I'm getting into. No, we do the contract first. Oh, okay, then, right. I said, <laughs> so, so then he said, he showed me the contract, and I said, oh, Bernie, I said, you know, this is just not going to happen. I said, because, you know, dead man's shoes, you know, he's be, the team's in a, in a bit of a hole at the moment, the car's shit, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, he, and I always remember he said, this is the contract, sign it or go home. <laughs> and um, to be fair to him, um, it was Elio's contract, less seven races or whatever it was. And, uh, and then, and so I understood that straight away, he then took me round and we got to the race shop and all the mechanics were working on the cars and they're all going thumbs up. They wanted me to be a, a part of the team. So I gave them the thumbs up and all of a sudden they all disappeared back in the, in the cars. And I thought, oh, what's wrong? And I looked round, Bernie was red in the face and there was a, um, a phone in the workshop with, you know, just bolted on the wall with a receiver, obviously, that gets on the top. Imagine this was 86, not too modern. Um, and somebody had put the receiver back on and twisted the wire. Um, he ripped the phone off the wall and threw it on the floor um, because somebody had twisted the wire and it wasn't inch well, it wasn't perfect. Immaculate. You know, if you go into the if, into the drawing office, all the blinds were at 45 degrees and the chain taken off so they couldn't change it. Everything with Bernie has been proper. But, you know, he's made Formula One what it is. He's you done know, okay, he's, hasn't he? He's done okay. And, and he's done okay for us as well. He's made a lot of us a lot of money um, and he's made Formula One, you know, one of the great sports in the world. When you look back at pictures of the, the, the low-line Brabham and you see how far you're sticking out of the top of it, didn't, didn't that occur to you at the time? But you know what? Um, yeah, of course it occurred to me at the time, but our, that, that era was safer than the previous era. So you always thought you were in the, 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 the height of technology. I mean, that car was awesome. At, at, at Monza, we had almost 1,500 horsepower. We, we went up 2,000 revs on every gear ratio, and we were on the limiter at 230 mile an hour just as we passed the pit exit. It was like a time bomb. It was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. And how, how was it working with Gordon Murray? Because uh, I don't know whether he was... I'd seen, did you say that he was away with way the fairies or something? I think was it was disappointing. Time, I, think, I think he had already uh, found other things to do. Um, and I th the reason I signed is I thought, although I knew the car was... was was pretty awful um you know we all hear about gordon murray and the midas touch that he'd bring a set of springs or a roll bar and transform the car but didn't the car was rubbish at the start and it was rubbish at the end you know we we the, the chassis was flexing because of this low down car it wasn't it wasn't strong enough um and um other than the engine it didn't really have many good points so uh, Gordon was a little bit disappointing for me, but I think I caught him in sort of an in, in intermediate year, um, and he wasn't at his best. Um, so I'm just shifting through some questions here. Um, the uh, so that was the one from Curtis. That one, by the way, about Gordon Murray. Um, there's one here that I, I can't say I've ever heard about, um, but it's Matt in Shout Korea. I'm thinking South Korea. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to hear about the accident at a charity kart race that caused you to miss the '89 French Grand Prix. Television commentators reported that your engine seized and you crashed into a transit van. Did, 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 what what um, there? I was invited to the Bully Bay, because I've, I've lived in Jersey now for 30, 31, 32 years. I was invited to open the, the, um, the hill up um, in a cart, but 
in typical Derek Warwick fashion, um, he made sure the car had the best engine. We had brand new tyres, the softest tyres you could run on the hill, um, because I thought, you know, I'm going to do more than just a demonstration. After the first two runs, I was two tenths quicker than everybody. Um, so it turned into a demonstration, into uh, um, to a full run. And as I, because it was a 100cc, so you, you, it wasn't a, a grid start, it was a rolling start. So they, they pushed you and off you went. And as I went over the start-finish line, I, I, I um, got all the, the carburetor and leaned it off just to make it go a bit quicker. <laughs> the blasted thing seized as I went over the line. And little did I know, is, is me, Mr. Safety, um, there was an ambulance parked on the entrance to a car park, basically blocking you going into the car park. And of course, nothing in front of it, and the thing seized. I took it sideways and went underneath the um, the back of this um, uh, ambulance um, and broke my back. Um, so I got carted off to hospital um, and um, got fined twenty five thousand dollars from Jackie Oliver um, for doing the the cart race without permission. And of course, that was where um, Martin Donnelly got his break, um, and he drove my car at the French Grand Prix. So, yeah, the only time I injured myself in a race car, really. Amazing, amazing. We've got lots of questions here about the XJR14. Um, I remember you talking about it briefly last time and how uh, when you first got into it, it was f a flat through the final corner, I think, and the whole team ducked behind the pits. So can, but everyone's basically wondering what it was like to drive and just how physical it was. And there is no way that was a sports car. I mean, it was just, it was a Formula One car. It was just unbelievable. Ross Braun, obviously, designed car, a beautiful car. Um, it was just, it was just a rocket car. It really was. And when we tested the car, it was on the old South Circuit at Silverstone. And um, as you go where, where the, um, the new the wing is now, there was a fast right-hand corner going into, um, into a, a chicane. And everything I've ever driven there, because you, you, I, sh I shook down a lot of Formula One cars there, uh, that flat right, or that right was not flat in anything. Um, I went through the car, I went through the corner on the installation app, coming to the pits, and I just could not stop smiling. And Ross said, what were you smiling at? I said, Ross, this is unbelievable. He said, you've only done a lap, one lap, installation lap, what's the matter with you? And the next lap, I knew I could take that right-hander flat, and I took it flat, and I remember looking out the side door as I was taking it flat, that's how easy it was, flat. And everybody was ducked underneath the armco because they thought the throttles were stuck open. And uh, it was just one of those moments, you know, and uh, the car was brilliant. It was, uh, it was difficult getting out of a window because that was the door, it was a little window. But um, yeah, it was, um, it was the best car, best sports car I've ever driven, the fastest sports car I've ever driven. It was just tremendous. And we'd have been world champion that year, but we lost uh, the win at Silverstone and um, that cost me the championship. We've got another car-related question here, actually. Um, this is from Roger. It's a question and a statement. Um, every time I see that Lotus Lamborghini, I think those two had a cast-iron set of balls to drive that thing. Um, I think I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> well, I've said it now. Um, how was the car to drive? Because I, I actually was... Someone co with this comment came a YouTube video of um, some onboard footage with you. From Hockenheim. And, yes, from Hockenheim. And it, I mean, it was, it was physical stuff. Because the camera's attached to the car, it's your body that's moving so much and the, your legs are absolutely crammed in, yet they're still, you know, I don't well, know how... Well, it just didn't fit me. You know, as you can see, I'm quite a broad guy. And I remember my shoulders used to overlap the, the, the side of the tub. Um, the car was dangerous, you know. It, was, it almost killed Martin Donnelly. Um, it should have, should have killed me at Monza. Um, and the car was, was weak, you know. It was, it was uh, every time we had an accident, it broke in half. Um, it was just a poor car, um, but that Lamborghini was just the most amazing <laughs> sounding engine. Uh, I'll tell you how bad it was, is on the, the press launch, uh, which, which is up at Lotus, uh, we had a marquee just outside the workshop uh, where all the press was, and I was supposed to drive it from the workshop into the marquee, obviously revving this lovely V12 up. As I came out of the workshop, the gearbox snapped off the back of the engine. So that, that wasn't a good start really. So we pushed it back, got some um, angle clamps, clamped the gearbox back in. Obviously we didn't have no drive then. So then the mechanics um, opened the tent and pushed me in with me blipping the throttle. Um, so I, I should have realized then that um, things were not gonna be good. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I remember um, uh, Lord March saying to me one year, Derek, he said, I've got just the car for you. 
I said, what's that? He said, I've got your Lotus from 1990 um, to drive at Goodwood. I said, Lord March, that thing tried to kill me three times in 1990. <laughs> I am not going to give it another chance. <laughs> uh, it was, um, you know, it, it was a shame. You know, it, uh, normally the questions comes from the floor saying, um, you know, what was your best racing car? And I'd rather say, I've driven a lot of chip boxes, um, and I'd like to put them in order. But that Lotus was definitely one of them. Um, we've got a story. We've got literally a few minutes left. Um, We've got a couple of questions here about tracks. Um, Anthony Jenkins is asking, which which modern, well, which old track would you like to return to the uh, to F1 now? And which is your, and then another one from Marco here, which is your favourite circuit? So sort of a two-part question. Um, if you're equipped with your XJR14, yeah, uh, I mean, I think um, I, I really like the old Silverstone. You know, when you had um, the flat. Stow, flat club, um, and bridge corner. I really like that. I think you know if I could go back to that, um, it'd be great. Favorite circuit, Monaco. You know, I mean, just you know, you had to have all your senses had to be 100% at Monaco. And and I remember when I put the arrows, the 89 arrows, um, six on the grid on the third row. Um, even Berger, um, if you remember, he had the accident at um, uh, Imola that year, um, so he didn't race at Monaco. And he came up to me after qualifying when I qualified six. And he came up to me and he had all burnt hands. And he put his hand in mine. And he said, gentle, please. And I shook <laughs> his hand. And he said, you're nuts. He said, you're mad. He said, you are the most impressive driver out there. And for another driver to say that, um, it's pretty cool. But the question was, um, Silverstone, I'd like to turn that back to where it was. I love, I love Suzuka, um, but Monaco is my favorite. Just because, you know, you really had to earn your money at Monaco. When you got out of Monaco, when you had the, the gear shift, your hands bled, your feet bled, you know, it was it was a tough job, especially one lap qualifiers, um, ground effect, um, one lap um, and, and um, 1500 horsepower. I mean, they were brutes. It was, it was, like I say, I'm the luckiest person in the world, you know, to be, to have come through the 80s and early 90s where we had paddle shift and active ride suspension and uh, so I, I had a little bit of everything. Um, I had the danger, you know, you were thought of as, as gladiators, uh, they were tough cars to drive um, and, um, and you survived that era which was, was, was pretty remarkable really. Although Monaco has the lowest average speed of the F1 season, from trackside it looks by far the fastest circuit just because of proximity. I'm sure it must feel exactly the same way inside the car. I remember walking through the tunnel once on my way from Mirabeau um, to the pits and it's when we had pre-qualifying and I stood in the middle of the tunnel and I thought I'd watch the first few cars come through and um, Stefan Johansson came through in an onyx sparks flying bottom out and the, the, the sort of the wind um, effect as it came through the tunnel I thought Shit. <laughs> I mean honestly it was frightening I mean I thought I, I, this is ridiculous and I remember I went out the tunnel thinking no, I don't really like that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, half an hour later, you're strapped to the same thing. Going through, and it was quite nice going through there in the, in the car, but watching was just frightening. It really was. Um, just, to, just to finish off, what I'd love to do is sort of bring it up to date. And we've talked about some of the work you're doing with young drivers at the moment. Um, I'm right in thinking you, you helped Oliver Rowland quite a lot. Um, it's, how's, how's he getting on at the moment? Uh, fantastic. I've been mentoring. Uh, this is my fourth year with Oliver. Um, first saw him at the McLaren or Swap BLC Young Driver of the Year. He was that guy I was talking about at Stowe on the first lap. And I thought, who is that? And it was Oliver Rowland, you know. And um, he's... Um, he, he throws a few curveballs at me now I was and again. Say, you, you were more or less his parole officer for a while, weren't yes, you? Yes, uh, it was. Uh, he's been um, he's been um, different, shall I say? But um, I think he has enormous talent. He he should be in Formula One. Uh, he obviously won the. He broke every record in Renault three point five last year. More wins, more points, um, more rostrums, more fastest laps, etc., etc. Um, absolutely stunning. He's in a car now at the moment that I would say is probably the fifth best team. Um, he's leading the championship, you know, in GP2. So he is pretty special. But, you know, I think it, as president of the British Racing Drivers Club, everybody keeps on saying, what's your legacy? What's your legacy? I haven't really got a legacy. I haven't really thought about it. But I'd like to think that, that I've pushed our young driver programs on you know this year we've got 12 superstars 
you know, Alex Lynn, Oliver Rowland, Barnaco, Jake Dennis, uh, Will Palmer, uh, all these guys are just fantastic drivers. We've got a great group of young British drivers at the moment, and 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 I, I really enjoy that, and I really enjoy being chairman of the McLaren Autosport BRDC Young Driver of the Year, and that's really what the BRDC is about. You know, we're 850 members, we're a racing, we're a racing drivers club, and that's what we should be supporting. We should be supporting uh, the new Lewis Hamilton, Jensen Button, um, because when they go, there's a big hole at the moment. You know, Jolien might make it, we don't know, it's early days for him, um, but we've got some drivers that I think people like George Russell, you know, they, they should be in, um, they should be um, knocking on the door of Formula One. But I mean, how frustrating do you find it that it is so money driven at the moment? I mean, look, I mean a guy like Lance Stroll, very good driver, but he's never had to fight as hard as some of the European drivers have had to fight because he's always had... I've got, I've got issue thing. with that because I think that, yeah, he, he can't, his, his father's a billionaire or whatever, he's still got to do it. Mm. Oh, he, and he's doing it. You know, yeah. he's, he's bloody fast, he's winning races, he's leading the championship. Um, so I think, you know, if he's got an opportunity to go all the way, which it seems he have, bloody good luck to him. Mm. What is frustrating is when you see great British talent that we're, we've got at the moment um, and there's not enough support within the UK system, whether it's government, whether it's lottery funding, whether it's private individuals, we haven't got enough support to could get these guys all the way um, to Formula One, and that that's frustrating yeah, for I mean, me. That's what I'm t because if if it came to a team having to choose between Lance Stroll, say, and Ben Barnaco or Oliver Rowland, you know, absolutely, 99% for certain that they're going to go for the guy yes. who's got good backing behind him. Well, they, you know, they, uh, their only hope is when you get a change of the guard. You know, the people at the moment seem to be um, following older, more experienced drivers. But but I think people like Verstappen is starting to change that attitude a little bit and people are more um, open to risk. But as we well know, it's also about money. You know, half the grid now, you know, the two Sauber drivers are bringing 10 and 12 million or something, you know. So it's very difficult to know how you get a, a, a young driver into Formula One now. Well, on, on that note, um, Derek, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolutely fantastic hour um, in, in the beautiful sunshine here. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Alan, thank you so much for doing all the audio. Simon, thank you for joining us as well. We'll be back next month for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Can I just say it's been a pleasure. Thank no, you very thank much. Thank you very thank much. You. Thank, thank you. you. The following offer expires 31st of August. Participating retailers only. Make the most of this summer because it's going to be gorgeous. There'll be blue, cloudless skies, rolling countryside, beautiful beaches and warm, balmy seas. To get out there and enjoy it, book your Mercedes-Benz in for its free summer health check as soon as you can. We'll top up the essentials like your windscreen washer fluid. We'll leave your air conditioning smelling delightful. And we'll even get your car sparkling inside and out. And if for any reason summer doesn't turn out as expected... Never mind. At least you'll be able to enjoy your car. Visit mercedesbenz.co.uk to book your free summer health check today. Unmissable offers from Mercedes-Benz. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 